Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, we're turning again to God's Word this morning, and I invite you to turn again to Mark chapter 10. We were here in the first part of Mark chapter 10 last week where we saw Jesus cut through the Pharisees' questions on divorce by turning back to Genesis 1 and 2 to establish God's will for marriage from the beginning. We saw Jesus challenge the thinking of his day, denying that there are wide loopholes to get out of marriage, and saying instead that God's plan and pattern from the beginning is that marriage would be a binding union between a man and his wife that should not be separated. Now we we did see that Jesus did not deny the protection of divorce in the, the face of the marriage covenant that's violated by sexual immorality or abandonment, but the driving theme of his words was to elevate our view of marriage and the covenant that we make before the Lord as husband and wife. You know, Jesus' words in Mark 10 are particularly significant for us today given the the dominant voices around us in our culture, and so we need to return to them this week. Because what Jesus gives us in these first verses of of Mark 10 is a clear articulation of God's design and His intention and His pattern for gender and sexuality and marriage. And so we want to read again this morning, Mark chapter 10, we'll read verses 2 through 9. Listen as we read God's Word. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test Him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom according to your word this morning, that we might understand it. And in understanding your word, we might know you and know how we can honor you and follow you as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you watch enough TV shows, you know that some of them will start with a disclaimer that is meant to clarify the intent of the the show that's to follow. So you might have a, a disclaimer that would go something like, the following show is not intended to depict a real person or a real event, but is a purely fictional account. And that's supposed to guide us as we think about the intent of the following show. Well, I want to I start with an opening statement uh, along those lines to clarify my intent this morning. As we look at God's Word, my goal this morning is not to address American culture. My goal this morning is not to rally us this morning in opposition to the world. My goal this morning is to speak to you as a congregation of Westminster. 
My goal this morning is to speak to those who profess the name of Jesus Christ and who long to follow their Savior and to be faithful to Him. And my goal this morning is to articulate as clearly as I can what God's Word teaches us about gender and sexuality and marriage and why God's Word teaches us what it does. Because the reality is that there are many voices out there that will give you many different answers to this question about what does God teach us about gender and and sexuality and marriage. And statistics tell us that there is significant confusion in the church on the answers to these questions. But the answers cannot all be right. And if we want to follow Christ, it is our responsibility and our duty to look to God's Word and His will. And that's our goal this morning. So that's my goal. It was several years ago that I first became familiar with a, a pamphlet. It was a, a white, plain white pamphlet, and on the front of the pamphlet it asked a very simple question. What did Jesus teach about homosexuality? When you opened the pamphlet, it was completely blank. I think uh, this point was exactly the same point that Representative Ted Liu made on the floor of Congress this past summer. He was uh, concluding a, a speech, and he said, I just thought at this point that I would now recite for you what Jesus taught about homosexuality. And then he stood completely silent for 20 seconds and then sat down. And the point that both of these are trying to make is that Jesus never said anything to condemn or limit homosexuality, and therefore Christians are perfectly free to follow Jesus by practicing or supporting homosexuality as they wish. And I guarantee you, students, at some point, if you have not already, you will hear this argument. And so we need to evaluate it. Unfortunately, for those who make this statement, they appear to have completely missed Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 10, where Jesus taught something very specific about sexuality in marriage. Because Jesus' reasoning here in Mark chapter 10 is this. That's our main point this morning. Jesus' point is if we want to know what God's will is regarding sexuality and marriage, we should not start by looking for a list of everything that is off limits. We should start by going back to the beginning and finding out what God's will was in the first place. I think we can think of Jesus' reasoning the way any one of us as kids might think about our parents' instruction to us. There were some times when our parents would say, hey, you're completely free to do what you want, just don't do, and they would, they would list something that was off limits for us. But of course, there were other times when your parent would say to you, right now, you need to go and do your homework. And in response to that statement, if I would have thought, well, boy, my mom didn't tell me I couldn't go watch a movie or play video games or or anything else, my mom would have been perfectly justifiable in saying, I didn't take the time to limit every single thing in the world you couldn't do. I told you what you should be doing. And if you disobey by doing anything else instead... That is sin. That is disobedience. And that's exactly what Jesus' reasoning to the Pharisees was here. He said, you've missed what God said you should be doing from the beginning. And so we need to look this morning at Jesus' reasoning. What I want to do is first consider what Jesus teaches regarding God's will and pattern from the beginning. 
And then I want us to see the consistency of Jesus' teaching with the rest of Scripture. So let's start by looking at verses 6 through 8, where we find Jesus' teaching regarding gender and sexuality and marriage. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, God made mankind male and female. So God's starting point with mankind, God's initial act, his initial intention, was to create all of humanity in his image. And then within humanity to make one distinction in that some were male and some were female. And Genesis 1 states that these are the two options. God made mankind male or female. And Genesis 2 then makes it clear that male and female were defined and identified by the bodies they were given. One male that was created from the dust of the ground and one female that was created from the rib of Adam. And all mankind from Adam and Eve will fit that pattern, male or female, based on the bodies they are given. But then we find out that a key reason that God made mankind male and female was so that male and female could be joined together in a marriage in order to produce offspring. In Genesis chapter 1, God's first comment, the very first thing he says, and his first command after declaring that he's going to make mankind male and female is, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, male and female are not a random idea. God didn't just say, well, maybe I'll do male and female. That might be kind of nice. No, he had a plan, a plan from the very beginning. Male and female are the intended plan of God from the beginning so that mankind could fulfill his first command and his intent to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. Then in Genesis 2, we find a further indication of God's intent. After God creates Adam, we read in Genesis 2 that Adam was alone. And God says that was a problem. Why was it a problem that Adam was alone? Well, God created man to multiply and to fill the earth and to govern the earth. And he created mankind to dwell in community and self-giving love with one another as image bearers of their triune God. But all by himself, Adam could do none of that. And so that is a problem. And so God says, I will create a helper who corresponds to him. It's the literal translation of the Hebrew. A helper who corresponds to him. That is a suitable match to complete him so that together they can fulfill my intent and my command. Their one flesh union of male and female will fulfill what I have intended for mankind. And so God creates Eve. And Adam bursts into song the second he meets her and says, this is woman and I am man. And therefore, they join together in marriage. But I want you to notice something that Genesis 2 does. In fact, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn back to Genesis 2 for a minute? We don't want to just reference it. We want to look at what God's Word is doing. So if we turn back to Genesis chapter 2, we're looking at verses 23 and 24 of Genesis chapter 2. And you see in verse 23, Adam, Adam's song, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, we belong together. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. But then in verse 24, what's interesting is that Genesis does not talk about this in terms of a particular love story. 
In other words, it doesn't say, and Adam fell in love with Eve and so he married her. Instead, it gives a pattern that all mankind is to follow. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. In other words, Genesis 2 shows us what happens with Adam and Eve and then says, and that's what all mankind should do. A man shall be joined to his wife. Jesus, Jesus back in in Mark 10 actually makes the logic even clearer. He says, God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, if you think back to your, your middle school English class, you, you know the word therefore. You remember what the word therefore means. Therefore connects two statements and says that the first is the reason or the cause for the second. I am cold, therefore I'm going to put a coat on. Those two statements are joined. The first is the reason for the second one. I am very disappointed about our lack of snow, therefore I'm considering moving to Buffalo. I've had that thought a few times this winter. The first statement is a statement of of fact, and it's the cause of the second one. What Jesus says is, God made them male and female, therefore a man shall uh, marry a female, and the two shall be one flesh. There's There's a connection here. Marriage is God's commanded pattern because that's the pattern God intended when he created man, male, and female in the first place. And so if you step back from Genesis 1 and 2 and and step back from from Jesus' words here, what we see is that there's a clear internal logic to the plan of God from the beginning. I will make them male and female. And the reason I'm making them male and female is so that a male and female might come together as one flesh in marriage. And out of this pattern, mankind will be able to Reflect me and multiply and fill the earth with my image bearers as I have intended. This, Jesus affirms, is God's pattern and intent from the beginning. Now, if we go back to the question, did Jesus teach anything about gender and sexuality and marriage? And the answer is absolutely yes. Because he told us what God's will for us was. He set out the pattern. And whereas our culture would like to present a worldview in which you are entirely free to choose any gender you like and how you would like to think about sexuality and who you want to be joined to without any categories or restrictions from the beginning, Jesus says, that was not so. From the beginning, God created two categories, male and female, and he created one pattern for sexuality and marriage, a man and a woman within a covenant commitment to each other. And anything outside of that pattern that God created from the beginning is to break his plan, his intent, and his command. That's what Jesus taught here in Mark chapter 10. Now, perhaps someone might push back and say, well, Chris, that's all well and good, but that's your interpretation. And don't you know that some people interpret this differently? Some people do say that Jesus' words are only describing Adam and Eve's marriage or the general pattern. They're not intended to require every person to fit within that pattern. And it's true. There are other interpretations out there. The question is, how do we know which interpretation is correct? And that's a very fair question. 
But what we have to acknowledge right up front is that both interpretations can't be true. They are mutually exclusive. Either Jesus established one pattern or he did not. They both can't be true. So is there a way for us to test which is correct? And I would suggest that we test these interpretations against the consistency of the rest of Scripture. And that's what I want to look at next. We know as a point of fact that God's Word does not contradict itself. So what else do we see in God's Word? Well, we find three things. The first thing we find is that every single person in Scripture is defined as either male or female, without exception. And the next thing we find is that every single example of marriage and every single comment on marriage in all of Scripture affirms and commands marriage between a man or a woman and affirms or commands sexuality only within the context of that covenant of marriage and there is no exception. And that's significant. Imagine for a second that someone came to Westminster for the first time two weeks ago. And they thought they heard me say that I did not like coconut. And they thought, but how could that be true? Coconut is so good. Well, imagine that they decided they were going to follow me around. And they would follow me to Wednesday night dinner and find out that I rejected the coconut cream pie every single week. And they would follow me around on Thursday at donut days. And they would find that I rejected any donut that had touched coconut. And they would find me, follow me around and eventually would say, you know what? We're seeing a consistent pattern here. And the consistency of this pattern demonstrates that our interpretation was correct. Chris does not like coconut. Well, I would suggest that that's exactly what we find in God's Word. The universal pattern in Scripture confirms our conclusion that Genesis 1 and 2 in Jesus' words establish God's will for gender and sexuality and marriage because that same pattern is confirmed with every comment, every example, and every command throughout Scripture. But someone might push back and they'd say, well, Chris, that, that's all well and good, but perhaps the Bible didn't know about or wasn't addressing the kinds of things we face in our culture today. That may have been true in the Bible's culture, but what about the things we face today? That seems different. But in point of fact, that's not true. While it is certainly the case that certain technologies of gender surgeries and such are available today that weren't in the Bible's times, the Bible is perfectly aware of every category we face today, of men attracted to men, of women attracted to women, of men or women wanting to act as or live as the opposite gender of their body. All of these things are mentioned in Old Testament and New. And in fact, each of these temptations or desires is articulated in Scripture. But the second thing we find in Scripture is that every single time one of these patterns is articulated, Scripture tells us that they are against God's will and a sinful rejection of God's word and his intent from the beginning. It's true in Genesis 19 or Leviticus 18 or Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 and 11 or 1 Timothy 1. And again, there's no exception here, which is exactly what we would expect if Genesis 1 and 2 are establishing God's will from the beginning. But which does not make much sense if some of these options or exceptions really would be acceptable. So that's the second thing we find, that every one of these patterns that is an exception, is said to be off limits. 
and a rejection of God's will. But that leads us to the third thing that we find in Scripture. And that is that when these things, such as homosexuality, are discussed, the reason that Scripture gives for putting it off limits has nothing to do with culture or appropriateness. The reason given is that it goes against God's plan and pattern from the beginning. Romans 1, for instance, Paul discusses many different sins in the passage, but when he comes to men and men or women and women coming together sexually, he describes it as against nature or against the pattern God created in nature. And then he says that it is the exchange of what God created from the beginning for dishonorable passions. You see how Romans 1 goes back to creation and God's pattern to describe problem. 1 Corinthians 6, I think, does essentially the same thing. 1 Corinthians 6 affirms only one pattern, a man and a woman in marriage. And then it lists every other category of sexuality as off-limits. Sexual immorality, you know, before or outside of marriage, adultery, sin within marriage, and same-gendered sexuality. Each of those categories are mentioned as off-limits, leaving only God's established pattern from the beginning. Now, of course, I'm aware that there are many questions here, and some of you might be asking these questions about individual passages in Scripture. Some people might say, well, but the Old Testament, doesn't the Old Testament not apply to Christians anymore? I mean, Leviticus said no to polyester cloth and eating bacon. How do we think about that? Well, and of course it's true that Christians are not under the law of Leviticus in the same way that, that Israel was. But while some of Israel's laws reflected God's unique call to Israel to be separate from other nations, some of those laws reflected God's moral call to holiness. And while Leviticus doesn't distinguish which are which, the rest of Scripture does. Acts chapter 2 and, or excuse me, Acts chapter 10 and Colossians chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 9 tell us which laws no longer apply, like polyester cloth and bacon. While many other passages reaffirm those laws that do, including the laws related to gender and sexuality and marriage. Others might say, well, but the New Testament, the New Testament doesn't really apply either, does it? Because isn't God's word condemning lustful and abusive homosexuality, which is what Rome would have been involved in? But Rome didn't know anything about loving and committed same-sex relationships, so how can we say that the New Testament applies to those? But unfortunately, this argument is both historically wrong and biblically wrong. We absolutely know from Roman history every type of homosexual relationship, including long-term and committed relationships, even though those are very much the minority. We know of them, and they are very much part of the pattern that Scripture addresses. Because biblically, neither Jesus nor Paul draw any distinction between the motive or context. What they say is this action is against God's will and pattern from the beginning, regardless of motive or context. Now, I can't address every counter-argument this morning, nor, nor could I effectively think of every question in your minds, but I would just say this. If you have more questions or more concerns or wonder about this, please come and talk to me. I would love to do that. But what I think we come back to here is that when we look at Scripture, we see a thorough, complete consistency with God's established pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. A consistency that is without exception from Genesis 1 to the end. And I believe this consistency sufficiently reaffirms our understanding of Jesus' teaching 
here in Mark 10. That God's will from the beginning was for a man and a woman to be joined together in marriage. So this is, this is the teaching of Jesus. And we know, by the way, we saw last week when Jesus was teaching God's will on marriage, he recognized when it came to divorce that mankind's sin and hardness of heart did create an exception in the case of a violated marriage covenant. But there's no exception like that listed here. We have a consistent pattern from the beginning. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us this morning? Where does that leave you and I? Well, I think it leaves us in a few places. For those who may be here this morning or who may listen, who wrestle with desires, questions, or temptations related to your gender or sexuality, Scripture speaks to you. And it speaks to your experience. Because the Bible assumes that in a world fallen by sin, some will face these temptations. The Bible assumes that every one of us will face some temptations that we foolishly choose, but we will all face other temptations that we do not choose, that we wish would go away, but that surge up within us because we are born sinners. But both categories... The temptations we foolishly choose and those that just arise within us because we are fallen creatures are called sin. And whereas the world tells you that your only hope for happiness is to fulfill these desires, the Bible tells us that our sin nature by birth desires things that seem good to us but actually lead to death. And it calls us to say no to them for our good. As one author puts of it, puts it, every single one of us is born like a person dying for thirst and longing for salt water. Now kids, if you're dying of thirst, salt water will kill you. We're all born like people dying of thirst and longing for salt water. And when God says no to the salt water, we protest and say, how could a loving God say no to what we need? But God desires to change us, that we might desire living water that will lead to our life instead of salt water that will lead to our death. And so God calls us to die to these sinful desires, just as every one of us is called to say no to sinful desires that press us. And of course, you do not have the power to do that on your own. But God offers you Christ And he offers you his spirit to wash you and sanctify you and hold you up through the weariness of this world until the day when we will be redeemed and perfected in his sight. Several months ago, I was listening to a podcast. It was an interview with a man who left his life as a gay atheist to embrace Christ. And the interviewer asked this question. He said, is it hard for you to think of all that you've given up sexually and relationally, because of what you believe the Bible commands you to do? And the man answered, no. When I discovered Christ and his salvation, I was like the man who found a buried treasure in a field, who gladly sold everything I had and gave it up that I might have that treasure. Isn't that a beautiful testimony? This, of course, doesn't mean that you will cease to face temptations This life will often involve dying to ourselves. But this testimony matches what Scripture promises us through faith in Christ. The joy of salvation and the daily grace to follow him in this life while we wait 
for the perfection we look forward to to come. So come. Come to Christ. Die to sin and self and find refuge for your souls. Well, how about for those of you this morning who do not wrestle with these temptations? Where does that leave you? Well, I think it calls us to respond in truth and in love. And we can fail on both sides of the boat. You know, students, at some point, you're going to be told that love means not just respecting people, it means affirming every choice that a person makes. As one person put it, the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated, has now been replaced by the platinum rule. You should treat others the way they want you to treat them. But objectivity, using reason and facts to determine what is right, has now been replaced by subjectivity. Whatever I feel is right is good for me. And how can you condemn what I feel? This is the logic you will meet. And in fact, even subjectivity has now been overshadowed by ideology. The statement that there is only one right and acceptable position to take. And if you disagree, no matter what you think or feel, you are wrong. No less cultural authorities than Taylor Swift and Lady Gaga have told us this is the case. They've declared that Christianity is about love and that means accepting everybody's choices. And as a result, you will be told, even if you are 100% gracious and compassionate, that you are a hater for holding to what God's will tells us. You need to hold fast to God's word. You need to know that love has never meant treating a person according to whatever they want you to do and to approve of every choice they make. Love means treating that person regardless of their choices with kindness and respect. But you are not called to openly approve of everything they believe or do. So do not be bullied into thinking that your affirmation of God's word makes you a hater. That said, Christians have done an awful lot of damage. An awful lot of damage in this regard. There are the extreme examples that have earned Christians the reputation of being haters. Examples that should be universally condemned like church groups that gather to hurl insults or spray gay pride parades with water, guns, and urine. We should condemn that roundly. But even for most of us, I think the temptations are more subtle. The fear of the goals of LGBTQ activists or our complete inability to empathize with the fears and insecurities of others have at times led us to respond with anger, hostility, and ostracization. And I think what every single one of us has to affirm is that sinning against someone who wrestles with their gender or sexuality is sin. And so we need to remember God's call to us and how we respond. Of course, there are some who are wolves trying to destroy our children who need to be opposed. That's true. But But many are are lost who need our friendship. So watch your attitudes and your hearts. Do not cease to affirm the truth of God's word without compromise, but do not cease to do it with gentleness and respect, trusting the Lord for what follows. Well, how about for all of us? A final thought for all of us. Over the past two weeks, we've talked about Jesus' high calling to marriage, and we've talked about Jesus' teaching on gender and sexuality. What can give us the strength to continue to hold fast to Jesus' teaching in the face of either cultural pressures or personal temptations? What can give us 
the strength to remain committed to our marriages even when they're hard and the world would tell us we should be free. There's only one thing. It's the thing that all of us need. Only by maintaining a high view of God can we hold fast to these truths. Only by planting our flag on the belief that God is God, that he is worthy of our worship and our obedience, that honoring him first is our highest calling and a priority, that receiving his approval is the only thing that matters in life, that nothing compares to the joy of knowing him through Christ Jesus our Lord. Only that high view of God and therefore a high view of his word as his will for us and the standard for what is right and good can hold us fast. So as his people, as his church, may that be our commitment. And in holding to that commitment in the fear of the Lord, may those who long to follow Christ not be deceived by the world, but may we hold fast to his word in the midst of this generation and so honor and glorify our God day by day. Let's pray. Father, I come before you this morning and our desire is to know and to understand your word. And our desire is to know and understand your word because we long to honor you and to worship you and to follow you. You've told us that if we love you, we will do what you command. And Father, we love you. We love your son, Jesus Christ. And so we long to know your word and to do what you command. So Father, would you work that in our hearts this morning? Would you work that in your church? Would we be people who have a high view of you, whose greatest priority is to honor you, to please you, whose greatest desire is to receive your affirmation? Father, we pray this for your sake and for your glory. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.